Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome to Rosemont's Global Investment Leaders Podcast. I'm Brad Mook, Managing Director of Investments at Rosemont, and your host for this episode. Today, we are introducing a new subseries called How They Did It. Each episode will feature an interview with an industry practitioner who has successfully navigated a particular challenge or issue we've seen people in our industry grapple with. In this episode of How They Did It, we'll be discussing management buyouts, or MBOs. We hear from a lot of folks inside big investment organizations that would like to find a way to start their own firm. Walking across the street and starting from scratch is one option, but it's often impractical and always risky. A negotiated MBO, on the other hand, can be an effective and lower risk way to gain independence if it's an available option. They're hard to execute and relatively rare, but pretty ideal when successful. Today, I'll be speaking with Todd Vingers, president and CEO of Leeward Investments, a Boston-based value equity manager with about $2.7 billion in assets. Last year, Todd and his colleagues successfully bought their franchise out of their prior firm, LMCG Investments, coincident with LMCG buying itself out of City National Bank and its parent company, RBC. While many daydream about having their own firm, Todd persevered and made it happen, and was kind enough to share his perspective on why it worked. Here's my conversation with Todd Vingers. Well, Todd, welcome to the program, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation because you've accomplished something this year that we don't often see these days which is a successful management buyout from a parent investment organization. And I think it's something that looks easy from the outside, but is often underestimated and isn't easy to pull off. And we talk at Rosemont with people all the time, really, that would like to be outside of a parent or would like to spin off or buy out their franchise, but they don't know how to do it. And they don't know how to go about putting those words into action. So I think your perspective here will be, will be great for our audience. So let's let's start by setting the stage. Tell us what your business looked like at LMCG, your prior firm, and maybe even how you got to that point. How did your business come come to be? Yeah, sure. So a little bit of history. So I had started American Century in Kansas City, their small cap value product in 1998. My prior firm uh, hired me to come and basically start the same product in 2002. So we started with small cap value for a few years, had some success, got some large clients, and then we started up a mid-product a few years later. And so over the course of 20 years, we built up a pretty good institutional book of business that uh, at the time of the transaction that we did, which is March of this year, was uh, about, I believe it was about $3.3 billion. And so we had five people on the investment team from the co-equal, co-PM on our two main products, which are small cap value and mid cap value. Uh, and we obviously had infrastructure at the old firm that supported a number of different products, including ours, but we wanted to be more independent and more focused on what we did, not to jump ahead, but that's uh, that's where we were. Sounds like you had a successful business there. It sounds like you had resources and infrastructure. So what wasn't ideal? What made you think about trying to do something else? Yeah, so initially when we came to the old firm, again, 20 years ago, uh, it was primarily an institutional long-only shop, but the the nature of the business changed a little bit over time, at least the prior firm, in terms of they invested in a private client business and a hedge fund. And again, the nature of the firm changed a little bit over time. And as that happened, our investment team thought that it made sense for be part of a firm that was singly focused on our clients that we manage money for and the partners that we work with. And we also wanted to take the entrepreneurship level to, to the next level. 
And we were willing to take a little bit of a risk uh, to accomplish that. Candidly, some people, some potential clients, people we marketed to, wouldn't really give us the time of the day because we were, you know, we were majority owned by a, a bank or you know, a large multinational bank, and that's not attractive to some people. So we thought that being a 100% employee-owned entity would open ourselves up to opportunities that we did not have before. So that was kind of big picture, the genesis of why we wanted to do it. When did you start contemplating your options and what was on the table in terms of how to yeah, that, go about this? That's interesting. So, you know, as you might imagine, every team that has a successful you know, business in terms of assets and process and, and track record, you get approached from people to time to time uh, that want to maybe do a lift up, but didn't really think that was practical. So we wanted to do something where we bought ourselves out and we kind of pushed or talked to both our prior firm and the ownership at City National and RBC to maybe accomplish that. And so we, over a couple of years, we were talking to them. At first, it was a very high level conversation about, boy, what would it make sense? Uh, would it make sense to do this? How do we do it? Um, do, you know, which is something that you'd be interested in, again, City National, RBC, from the point of would you be willing to part with us? And so we, again, worked on that for a couple of years. And in 2019, City National RBC, they were starting to divest themselves from their affiliates. So you've got a big retail business. They had some institutional businesses on the City National side. And they were looking, they were thinking that wasn't part of their core competency anymore. And they were looking to potentially divest. So in 2019, we really started having a real conversation, started negotiating a deal. And that started basically at the very end of 19 and into the first quarter of 20. And as you might imagine, first quarter of 20 comes around towards the tail end of that, COVID happened. So everything gets put in the back burner and it just kind of stops for a while. By the end of the year in the fall, towards the holidays in 2020, okay, it looked like the world's not coming to an end. Maybe we can kind of restart negotiations, which we did. And we actually struck a deal at the end of 2020, just I think the week before Christmas, basically worked on it over the course of the next, you know, almost, I guess, year and a quarter to get it accomplished. So it was a long process, especially dealing with a larger bank. That's kind of the time frame, how it started, what we were thinking. And I haven't given you a tremendous amount of detail about what went through in that interim period between we struck the deal and, and uh, completed the deal. But that's kind of how it got going. That took a long time. That took a lot of patience, a lot of back and forth. Did, I mean, did you did you ever along the way contemplate a non-negotiated transaction? I mean, did you did anybody at some point raise their hand and say, you know, these all these talks and indecision, you know, or not indecision, but you know, figuring things out over a long period of time, this would just be much easier if we went across the street, set up shop, and then hopefully our clients will follow us. Did that was that ever part of the calculus? Uh, not really, only because the, the, I think the bar had been raised over the last again twenty years. I think twenty years ago, maybe you could have accomplished that. But with all the infrastructure you need, the compliance, the operations, and the bar has been raised every, frankly, year of the last 20 years, it'd be very difficult to do that. Um, and have clients, you know, clients frankly couldn't come with you with non-competes, non-solicits, but you go with no assets and be hard to afford infrastructure in a lot of cases. So that wasn't really a consideration for us. Yeah, that's, that's one of the conversations that we have with folks who are contemplating doing that is A, Things have changed and it's much harder to reach minimum viability. And the first thing you need to be thinking about is what are the probabilities that your clients will follow? Some no doubt will if they can, some maybe won't. And then there's a whole bucket of maybes in between that needs to be probability weighted. But but you're trying to get to a point where you can figure out if it's even viable. And I think the way you approached it with, with the buyout and negotiated transaction ensured that it would be viable from day one, assuming you got the client consents. Yeah, that's the way we looked at it, exactly. Yeah. So Todd, as you contemplated the buyout 
and initiated conversations with your parent. Was it tough to figure out who you needed to talk to? You had you had a multi-layer organization with with LMCG, City National, RBC. And what were the key issues that you had to discuss with them in order to facilitate the conversation and let it happen? Yeah, no, great question. So where we went was easy. I was on the uh, the board of our of the prior firm with LMCG, and we reported into an individual at City National. We actually didn't have a lot of contact points with RBC. That came into negotiations later, which we can talk about. But with City National, you know, I talked to the person there on a regular basis, so that wasn't hard. Um, knew, knew the people, knew his staff, and so we got it going. You know, key sticking points, like everything you could think of, like you would imagine, is obviously price, the structure of the deal, not just the amount, but but how you structure it and so on. So that that was key, and that took a while to get through, frankly. I mean, there was a bit of a bid-ass spread, and you negotiate like, like any other deal. So the price, obviously, was huge. The people, obviously, were going to take the investment team with us, the entire team. That was, you know, basically every, in everybody's benefit to, to do that. But beyond that, certain people we wanted from the firm. Now, frankly, we had carte blanche to approach most people at the firm, and they had to make a choice. Do they stay with LMCG or do they go, do they go with Leeward? And frankly, um, everybody that we approached, we were able to get to come with us. Um, so we were so pleased. We didn't know that was going to happen. We actually started, uh, after we struck the deal, we started a search for outside people, for a chief compliance officer, for chief operating officer, for basically a CFO, because we didn't know who would come with us. And frankly, we were able to get all the people with us that we wanted to come. And so it was it was really a, a great, uh, I don't know if it was a surprise to us, but it was really a great outcome. So the the, the, the LMCG and National, everybody wanted us to win, because partially because of the earnout and partially because this was a friendly deal. Everybody wanted it to happen. So where did it make sense for people to go? Where was their best home? Some stayed with LMCG, some stayed with, uh, went to Leeward, but all the people that we wanted came to Leeward. So it, fighting over people was not really an issue. So wor that worked out very well. Well, you make an interesting point, which is that both the buyer and the seller were aligned in the direction of the outcome. So because you said that they were strategically divesting of some of the investment teams or, or you know, parts of the business, this was a goal that they eventually wanted to get to. I, in some respects, it sounds like you were helping them get to where they were trying to go. Oh, or, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a contrast to what some of these situations might look like, where the parent organization would really rather keep the business and the franchise, and you're trying to pry something out that they don't want to let go of. You're right. I, I think we had a, a fortunate confluence of events in terms of we wanted to do what we wanted to do. The parent wanted to do what they wanted to do. And that doesn't always happen it's in, in this day and age. And, and again, lift outs are more difficult, as we talked about earlier. So I think we had a unique situation, which is I know we'll probably get to it at some point, but it's probably why you don't see a lot of deals in the space right now. But again, I'll, we can save some of those points for later. Right. So how did this process affect your day job? You said you were on the board, so already part of your day or you know your proverbial day was allocated to issues at the more corporate level. But how, how you know how did this affect the team? How did this affect you? You know when do you tell people on the team? And you said you had carte blanche to approach people. Um, so at some point, it's it's a bit of an open book. But I'm just curious because these topics can can take over the water cooler and be a big distraction to a team at a time when it's really important for you to maintain good investment performance and client relationships. So was it a distraction? Or were you able to ring fence? Um, did you have a lieutenant who could do most of the work, quote unquote, and, and you know, kind of leave you to do the things you need to do? 
Yeah, so maybe to back up just a little bit, when I was on the board at Helm CJ, I would say less than 5% of my time was devoted to kind of macro firm things and so on. Most of my time was being able to spend being on the on the team and in, on the investments. So that wasn't really a big a time suck, if you will. And when we started negotiating the deal, I do have a, a partner, a Jay Willardson, who's my number two at the firm. He was very much involved in negotiations. Also, we brought the rest of the team in. So they were actually helpful, uh, the investment team. So they were actually helpful with valuation and negotiation strategy and so on. So at first, it was just kind of the five of us until we were able to kind of go out go out more broadly. Do you have any trouble getting, you said the people at the firm were pretty enthusiastic, those that you approached, and you had a pretty high conversion rate in terms of getting people to come come with you. What about the client side? And how, how did that land with clients when you started to tell them, I guess, when you announced the deal? Or were you able to preview? Or were you boxed out from that? Yeah, that's a great question. That, that uh, went back and forth between all sorts of different legal opinions. But at the end, we were not able to give people a heads up. We basically had to tell everybody at the same time. But they, at first, it was all they were all very responsive and, and thought it was great, sounded fantastic. But they wanted to put us through our, our due diligence paces again. Let's hear more about it. Most of the clients like going to the new process. Um, and uh, so it, you know, they were enthusiastic. We were able to attain, I think, 93% of the revenues of the firm. Um, they like the new ownership. So again, as long as we had our operational uh, ducks in a row, they were fine coming and enthusiastic in coming. That's a great success rate. Um, a little bit of a leap of faith, but I'm sure you wouldn't have <laughs> taken the leap unless you had some confidence that you know clients would be supportive, at least for the most part. Um, was there is there a walk away threshold on a negotiation like that where if a certain number of clients don't follow the deal scuttles? Well, it's interesting. We did have that number. And, but I, I really can't disclose that, but we did have that number. But really, if if we had not reached that threshold, we'd kind of already shown people what we're talking about doing. And so if we if we weren't able to do it, it wouldn't have looked very good. It could have caused a problem with the, uh, with the business staying with LMCG, right? Because people said, okay, you want to become independent, didn't work out, some people didn't go. At that point, you start to shut a client. So there is kind of, there is a leap of faith and there's just no getting around that. And so right. having having a threshold Yes, we're not, you know, uh, I guess the team, because we we obviously put some money into the deal. We would not have been obligated to do that, but it would have been a difficulty. It would have been difficult for the business going forward at the old firm. Uh, you you mentioned um, people put money in into the purchase from the team. So I want to get into that in a second. But first, I want to just circle back. You mentioned a wide bid ask spread between you and the parent. And over time, clearly that narrowed to the point where you were able to find a suitable price what changed between then and now in terms of narrowing that spread? Was it, you know, market conditions? Was it just continuing discussions and, you know, everybody giving an inch here or there? Or, you know, how would you characterize that process? Because I think that's probably a, a pretty pivotal point. I don't want to pry into things that are, are, you know, you can't disclose, but I'm just trying to tease out how that process worked. Because I imagine that bid-ask spread is something that most would be buyers outers, you know, what's the right term, people who would do what you've done would like to do what you've done, um, face that bit ask and, and, you know, is it time? Is it just being very persuasive? <laughs> what worked for well, you? I, I think it's, I think, well, you know, the, the issue was, as you mentioned, and we might get into more, there aren't a lot of deals being done right now in, in, in these sorts of spaces. So there basically aren't comps to use. Yeah. The comps that you had were from, you know, five and 10 years ago. So what's the market environment like now? And so that kind of causes the bid X spread to widen because, you know, there simply aren't comps. If you had better comps, you could get to it more quickly. And so I think you mentioned, you know, it was uh, it was one of the things just kind of each side giving a little bit over time. 
Yes, there definitely was that. I and mean, I would say that the market environment and going through COVID probably helped narrow that spread a little bit in terms of, okay, you know, let's quit messing around. Let's kind of get to the, let's get to the goal line here or get it over the goal line. And so that was a little bit of an impetus for everybody to give a little bit. Yeah, that's good when that works. So going in, then what did you think were the critical issues that you had to get right in order for your new firm, Leeward, to be a success? Yeah, so we knew we had to have best-in-class operations to make the transition as seamless as possible for our clients and our partners. So, and we thought, okay, what do we need to have? What do we need to do right? We thought we had to have operations, trading, compliance, relationship management in-house. Those were all critical to us. But we also were able to start with a blank sheet of paper and say, okay, what are our core competencies and what can we outsource? What's more commodity type of systems processes that we can outsource? So we decided to outsource the back office or the back part of our back office operations and our IT. In both cases, our COO, Chief Operating Officer, those things reported to him. He ran director, he was director of operations at our prior firm. He actually, we had all, all of our operations in-house, including all the back office, soup to nuts, and the IT. And he thought, you know what, we can do this a better way. We have a blank sheet of paper. The world's changed since we designed it again 20-some years ago. And that's the direction we decided to do. Where we could, outsource things that aren't, aren't they're critical, but are commodity and aren't, aren't, don't have to be in-house. But the really important things that aren't commodity, client-facing, uh, and so on, we wanted to have in-house. Those areas that I mentioned. So those were critical to us. We think we've accomplished that. Um, our larger clients with uh, due diligence staffs have come in, put us to our paces, and the feedback has been great so far. So, so let's turn to Leeward and where you are now and, and where you're going with your new biz. One thing, it sounds like you have an, an enthusiastic team that was excited to be part of this, part of the journey. Um, and it sounds like team members put up capital to help make this happen. Um, which can be a bigger ask for some than others. So how do you figure out you know, who's going to own what in the new firm and how it's going to be managed? How do you think about setting it up from that standpoint? Yeah, so that was important for us because the, the one thing that we lacked, and you know, we have nothing but good things to say about our prior firm, but because we are majority owned by the bank, one thing we lacked was, I think, a true equity culture or it, the equity culture wasn't developed as much as we would have liked. And with being 100% employee owned, that was a big ask or a big attraction, I say, to people and, and, and to the outside and as well as the employees. So I think I think at the old firm, nine of us were partners. And so all nine of us that were partners and rolled into uh, Leeward, we rolled our equity into Leeward. All 11 people that are partners wrote checks in addition. So you have you have rollover equity, you have checks, so you got 11 partners. And then there's, there's also an earn out over time tied to a couple different metrics. And that's, uh, I think it's publicly known that uh, at least with a lot of our clients and so on, it's, you know, over, over you know, a number, number of years. And so there's really a chance to really increase the value of your equity over time that they, our, our, our earnout is not that technically or in any way. But you can almost think about it like that a little bit. As you pay that off, that accrues to your equity interest. And so that was a powerful incentive for people because they could really see in a status quo world and nothing status quo, things change all the time. But if the world were status quo, you can really see how your equity would grow over time, you know, in, in a flat world. Right, right. Have you seen a, it may be too soon, but have you seen a, a shift in mentality among your colleagues now having that independence and an, an equity opportunity like that? That's a great question. So we did not have a lot of people that were, you know, spent a lot of money on, I mean, people spent a lot on travel and so on, but we weren't staying at the Ritz's and so on. Ne never did that. The culture of the old firm never did that. So it's not like we had to rein in um, rein in extravagant spending, but I will say that at the margin, 
you know, people that might have taken an Uber for, Uber before, or maybe taking Uber X now, uh, instead of staying at a Westin, maybe they're staying at something, you know, uh, you know, something a little bit, a little bit down. So people are definitely developing corporate equity mindset. They are watching what they spend, um, and it, it just, it just does change the thinking. It really is amazing because before, uh, a number of us were were partners, but with such a small stake, it didn't matter. Some weren't partners. And so you really go from an employee mentality to an owner mentality. And that is and that is absolutely huge. Yeah, interesting. Because you had such a high success rate in bringing clients over, I imagine your business today looks a lot like it did before from an economic standpoint. So I'm curious, you know, if somebody's contemplating a startup or isn't bringing over as much of the client base, you know, maybe some of them were system assets or in mutual funds or something that couldn't transition as easily. Um, you may be dealing with a much smaller revenue base. And, and, and the answer to this question would be a foregone conclusion. I'm, I'm leading towards compensation. People are being a little bit more conservative on expenses, um, you know, maybe through their choices. Did you have to make adjustments or did everybody agree to adjustments in compensation to kind of lean things down a bit? Or were you able, because the economics were pretty consistent, to keep everybody where they were? How, how did you approach that? Yeah, we were fortunate that because we're bringing over the business, we have the economics we, we do. No one really had to sacrifice on, on current income, which I understand is a little bit unusual in deals such as ours, but we're just happy to be in that fortunate position. If it was more of a startup without clients, you have to think about things differently. There's, uh, it's, it's riskier and it's leaner, but there's more upside over time. Uh, it's just depending on, on how you do it. But yes, uh, we were able to, you know, be, we're in a pretty fortunate position to be able to not have to make big sacrifices up front. That's, we understand that's not always the case, but again, being redundant, but we're, we were fortunate to be in that place. Yes, I, I think you're right. That is pretty unusual. And one of the challenges that we see, and, and maybe this is something that has been an impediment to more startup activity, maybe not as much buyouts, but but startup and, and firms with leaner economics to start. As we mentioned, the bar's gotten higher. They don't want to sacrifice comp. And so they want the upside, but you know, not necessarily willing to make the sacrifices in the short term in order to have the bigger upside through the equity longer term. And that, that adjustment's tough. We have a lot of conversations with people about being realistic about that. You're, you're, you're right. Your team fortunate that your team didn't have to necessarily make those hard choices about what they were willing to give up, but that's a testament to the franchise that you built. Well, thank you. you know, it's interesting because we did think about what if we were out on our own? What if we didn't have the amount of assets that we had in the revenue? Would we have done it? It's interesting because I think a lot of the people at, at, uh, at the firm would have done it, but there are some people who, you know, maybe are earlier in the career, don't have enough, as much net worth, you know, have kids, you know, in school and, and you know, and so on, um, and they have to have an income. Uh, so that would have made it more difficult. I'd like to think that we would have done it anyway, um, but who knows? Well, where there's a will, there's often a way. So, they, but that does raise an interesting topic around business development. You're again fortunate that you have an established client base, an asset base, so it's perhaps not as urgent. Um, but nonetheless, I'm sure you have aspirations to grow the firm and uh, develop new business. So we hear a lot of firms, we see a lot of firms looking for distribution and maybe plugging into bigger firms going the opposite direction as you, because they want access to distribution and a sales force and, and, um, and are desperate to find sources of growth. You're now out on your own. I don't think you had a big distribution infrastructure, um, but at, at your prior firm. Um, but what's your view on new business development and how confident are you that you'll be able to, to gather new clients? 
We actually feel very, very strongly about our, our prospects. We've actually got our first uh, win just uh, not too long ago, I think since Brad, since you and I talked last, so we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. We actually thought we'd be in the penalty box new business a little bit longer than we have it. We've been in a, in a number of finals, a number of searches. We're still in a number now, and we think we're going to land a couple more things. So we actually, uh, I think we're ahead of schedule in terms of when we could realistically get business in. But, you know, we've got uh, the uh, consultant world covered pretty well. We've got uh, a, a person that covers the um, sub-advisors, the, the, the mutual funds, and so on. And we're, we're getting some pretty good looks. So we actually think we're in a pretty good space. Um, I guess, could we plug into somebody else? Yeah, I guess that's a possible, I mean, that's something that we could have considered, but that's not where we are. We feel like we've got enough uh, horsepower and bandwidth to be able to go out and get some assets with, with what we have. So we're not contemplating anything else. I mean, obviously... If we were, we probably wouldn't have set it up and done the deal the way, way we did it, you know, to go and do something else and plug in a distribution elsewhere. But we feel great about it. And we think our prospects are, are very strong. No doubt. And that's, I think, a, a good example that it can be done. It's not easy, but it, but it can be done. And hopefully you kept a list of those prospects <laughs> who had said they'd prefer to do business with you as an independent 100% employee-owned firm as a ones to circle back to and, and hopefully convert. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of that was, you know, there are some consultants out there, for example, that, you know, just don't hire uh, unless you're 100% employee owned. They just don't do it. So it's not so much individual potential clients that were, would have been hesitant. It's kind of more the intermediaries that the, some of the consultants that prefer the ownership structure that we now have. Right, right. How are you finding the experience of running a firm? Well, it's interesting. So uh, you asked a little bit early about my my day to day job, and you know things were busy, you know, during the transaction or during the transition between negotiating the deal and some of the going back with basically four sets of law firms and so on. That took some time, but now, I mean, we've got such a good team in place. Uh, our our COO, our CCO, our CFO, our relationship management people, our trading, they all do such a great job that I don't, you know, I, the way I look at it, I'm the president of the company and technically or CEO and president of the company. But I don't technically have to do that and sit on top of that. They, we've got such good people with such track records, tenured in what they're doing. I don't have to do much. And during the, during um, after the announcement, when we we're super busy and, and trying to get things going operationally and uh, making the transition over, I actually felt guilty and the investment team felt guilty because we're just doing our jobs, our investment jobs, and they're doing the heavy lifting. They're doing uh, working the super long hours. Now, that's died down a little bit, but still... They're doing things day in, day out. Uh, most of the firm reports to our, to our COO. Uh, and there's a reason for that. I'm, I guess I've got the, uh, the title of the firm, but I'm not running the firm on day-to-day -day business. I don't have to. We've got great people in place that do that. And it was, that was important to set it up that way. Because if I was going to be happily responsible for a lot of operational things day in, day out, I would take time away from the portfolio. And I'm not serving my clients. And then the clients and our partners, they're, they're getting something else than they had before. So that was very important for us. Yes. Well, I, I think your modesty is showing a little bit, probably deserve more credit than you're willing to give yourself. But I've, I've known you back to 2009 when I started at SEI and, and you were a longtime sub-advisor for SEI. And, and you've always been very good about sharing credit with your team, but being a team, more, more importantly than that, being a team structure. And I know all of our meetings, your team was in and contributing, and you've never seen it as the Todd show. It's always been more than that. And, and your people have been integral to the success of the franchise. So I guess I'm agreeing with your comments and, and recognizing that there are a lot of people who are playing sporting roles here. Thank you. It's early yet. It's been less than a year, but I'm curious through all of this, what you've learned in hindsight, did you get the critical issues right? 
Would you have done anything differently through the process? Have there been any un unintended consequences or regrets? I don't know if you've had time to reflect, you might be too busy, but I think it's an interesting opportunity for insight. You know, again, not, not to be too self-effacing, but give a lot of credit to the team again, because we got the critical things right. The operations were fantastic. Tra uh, seamless transition for clients or for partners. And it, yeah, very, very important for, for us. You know, everything went so well, our joke around the company and, and externally has always been, you know, when we get the question, what's gone wrong? Well, our, we had problems with our copier, right? And it's true, actually, and, and a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I would say the one issue that we had is we had done a bunch of tests before the close with uh, all of our clients' uh, custodians. But when we went live, even though we tested those connections, a couple of the custodians weren't ready to go. And so they were causing trading issues for a couple of days for, for a handful of clients. So I guess that's the one thing if we were to go back and I guess we would double and triple check that, even though I, the way I look at it at the time, I think we did everything we reasonably could have done. Right. Now going, if we had to do it again, we would go back and just again double, triple, quadruple check that. But other than that, you know, I don't like to get up a soapbox and, and brag, but we, we did a really good job and there weren't big issues that, boy, would we have done this different, done that better? For the most part, the answer is no. We, we really thought of the issues and were able to get them done. Well, I think that's an important point around the way you approach something like this and thinking about it holistically and not taking anything for granted. So the fact that you had great people in great seats thinking about all the issues and I assume a communication forum that you were able to surface those and address them is important because we do see firms that are maybe just an investment team who think that they can get it up and running themselves and have, you know, maybe it's an outsourced group or it's somebody part-time, but not really giving full weight to all the areas of the organization that need the attention on a transition like this. I think it's a hard, hard bridge to cross if you don't have experts in the key functional areas. We thought it was critically important. There's just no other way we would have done it. But again, you know, we do, as you mentioned earlier, we did have the benefit of having economics in place to do that day one. But the extent that anybody you know goes through this and has the ability to make sure they've got all these things nailed down with their own people, if they can do it, you know, our, our advice would be go that route. I'm curious how long you described the whole process as taking a few years. How long did it take once everybody said yes? Well, so again, I think we uh, you know we signed the deal, agreed to terms. Let's just call it December of uh, 2020, and then we, you know, got the deal transacted uh, March one of this year. So it was basically just shy of a year and a quarter. It was longer than we would have thought. But when you're dealing with, you know, we primarily at first dealt with the people, City National, but then RBC is involved. They've got their own corporate development people, and so you had a lot of different parties going back and forth. Um, and it just it takes a while. There's some uh, there's some bureaucracy there. It just takes a while to go through. So it was a year and a quarter. We didn't expect it to be that long, but it is what it was. In hindsight. They actually gave us the time to make sure everything, again, to kind of go back and touch some earlier things, made sure that we had time to get all the operations buttoned down. So an extra time actually was beneficial to us, even though we were all getting very impatient. Oh, I'm sure. Actually, once you start to project and think about what the future is, I'm sure that's very exciting and you can't wait to get started and, and being dragged down in bureaucracy can be can be tough. What? So speaking of excitement and optimism, what opportunities do you now have that you didn't have previously? What are you excited about? Uh, you know, I think we've touched on it a little bit before in terms of we just feel like we've got a good message out there, you know, our, our process, the people we have, the infrastructure and so on. But obviously, you know, first and foremost, it's got to be process and, and performance and so on. Our performance has been has been relatively strong. Uh, we actually think we're set up not to get you know into the weeds on investments. But we actually think we're set up. Our style we think is a high quality value style. 
Uh, we think that the uh, the Fed, with kind of helicoptering money for you know uh, so long between artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing, encouraged people to take risk. We are a little bit of a risk averse process, so the fact that the Fed's taking away the punch bowl actually uh, we think it gives some um, some tailwind for our process. So on the process side, performance side, we think we're set up pretty well, and we're just excited to be out there telling a story that we have that we've already touched on. You know, between the operations, 100% owned. Just the story is kind of coming together very well, and it's giving us some opportunity. So over the course of the next you know, couple of years, that's what we're concentrating on. Before we consider doing other things, the first thing we want to do is do no harm, right? We're, we try not to do too many things. We want to make sure that we're delivering just what people expect us to deliver. And after that, we can consider other things, whether it's you know tangential products at some point, but that's not something we're doing right now. You know, it's early yet, so your chapters are yet to be written, but so far it looks like an MBO success story. And that's something we don't see a lot of in, in the industry. Do you have any thoughts as to why we don't see that more often? Yeah, it's interesting. So part of it is you've got in the institutional long-only space on the equity side, you've got most assets by definition are in, in large cap. And between fee pressure and people going passive, it's kind of a shrinking asset pool on the on the active side. And so people are thinking, okay, it's kind of a secular decline. So what are we going to do about that? So they put things together to actually, you know, make you know do mergers instead of MBOs, spread the same assets or declining assets across the same infrastructure and, and kind of boost profitability that way. So I think that's part of why that's going on. In terms of why things aren't going, it's tougher to lift out because of non-competes, non-solicits, and you know, probably was a number of years ago. It's agreements are crafted such that it's harder to do. And again, as we talked about, you know, we had a confluence of we wanted to do this and our ultimate owner was looking to de-emphasize what we do. So it really came together. On the separate account side, institutional side, you know, that's a that's a mature business. I think that traditional separate account institutional business being be mature is giving people pause. Yeah, that's interesting. So in some respects, maybe there's a, you mentioned maturity, there may be a scarcity factor that if it's business in long-term secular decline, it's harder to potentially launch it as a new enterprise. And if it's a business that's in a capacity constrained, scarce area that shows a lot of promise and growth opportunity, people don't want to let it go, or it's going to be priced too high to be to do a feasible buyout. I don't know. There are a lot of factors at work. I think you just stated more clearly than I did. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, we're working together. It's a, it's good teamwork. Well, Todd, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today. I, I wish you and your team a lot of luck going forward. Um, I know you guys have earned it through through hard work and skill, but luck always helps. And appreciate you giving us a few minutes to give us some insights on your transaction and how you've kind of crossed the bridge from a parent-owned organization into a 100% employee-owned organization. And, and I think it's going to be useful for, for other people who might contemplate doing the same. All right, Brad, appreciate the time. Thanks, Todd. Take care. All right, bye-bye.